Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, taxing the salaries of CEOs. There's no limit to how much profit they want to make. We'll speak to the federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh about his party's proposal to tax what he describes as excess compensation and how it's related to demands we are hearing from federal public servants. Also, defending Canada. An open letter is signed by former cabinet ministers and military commanders calling on Ottawa to reprioritize defence spending and to do more to protect Canadian sovereignty. Coming up, we will speak to retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie and find out why he added his name to the petition. And detained in Syria. There are concerns tonight about the well-being of two Canadian women and three teenage girls. We'll speak to their lawyer about a brief message that was received today. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll soon learn whether or not federal public servants will go on strike Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, still about an hour away from the time of this taping. And a key sticking issue is still wages. That is something many Canadians can relate to, which is why the federal NDP leader is raising CEO salaries as a means to addressing income inequality in this country. 25 years ago, the gap between what the median income of a worker at a company and the CEO was about 100 times difference in salary. Today, the average is 243, over 240 times. Massive increase over 25 years. And then we've got some egregious examples. One example I'm sure you're not surprised I'm going to give you is Galen Weston, who earns 431 times more than the median income of someone at his company. Well, joining us now is Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, good to see you. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you began this day uh, by raising this issue of CEO salaries. And I, you right. know, I can imagine the response to that. Uh, you know, people saying, here we go again, another anti-business rant from the NDP. What do you say to critics who see this as another tax and spend scheme instead of a, uh, an invest and gross uh, solution? We say this is really about those workers in our country that are feeling really squeezed by the inflation, they're feeling hurt by it, and they're looking at the CEOs of the companies they work for and saying, wait a second, they're not being squeezed, they're making more money than they've ever made before. So we're saying if a company can afford to give their, C their CEO, like Galen Weston and Loblaws, 431 times the average salary of their employee, then they can definitely afford to contribute back more to society. But if they want to pay less taxes, all they have to do is increase the wages of their workers, lower that gap between the CEO salary and the average worker salary, and they won't have to contribute more. It's really about incentivizing raising salaries for workers. Is there really that many CEOs, though, that can actually be taxed and address the kind of wage gaps that you're talking about in this country? Oh, yeah. There's a significant number in our, in our country that are making... Uh, over a hundred times. The average actually r rate of a CEO in Canada, the average salary is two, over 240 times that of the median income of the employee at that very same company. So that's the, that's the average CEO. This is a significant number of folks. And if we can put this in place, it will significantly incentivize companies to lower the inequality or that gap 
between CEO pay and worker pay. And the last example, 100 years ago, or sorry, 25 years ago, the gap was only 100 times between the average worker and the average CEO. That has grown to over 240, like I mentioned. So it's more than doubled in the past 25 years. Clearly, there's a problem. Okay, so a larger spread that you're pointing out. But you know, it's interesting that we're actually having this discussion right now because, as you know, PSAC and the federal government trying to, to create some type of workable solution uh, to their contract dispute. And to hear it from the PSAC president, uh, we spoke to him yesterday, uh, the fight for him is not just about federal public servants, but also a fight for uh, all workers because of the precedent that any deal would set countrywide. Do you agree with that argument? I agree. Every time a worker fights for fair wages, they're fighting for their own fair wages, and they're also fighting for all wages. Anytime a worker fights for healthy or health or healthier work conditions, safer work conditions, all that is a, is, a, is a solidarity fight. It's a fight that helps raise the bar for everyone. So absolutely, I believe in that. Now, your deal with the Trudeau Liberals, uh, obviously, keep them in power. Are, are there any red lines that the government cannot cross uh, when it comes to PSAC? Is there any uh, one tactic or move that would, for example, have you question the deal that you have with the Liberals? Well, it's not so much as a part of the deal as something that we laid out as a non-starter for the deal. We said, you, you can never expect us to support back-to-work legislation where a workers' party will never do that. And that was laid out very clearly. The Liberals understood that that's not something we'd, we'd ever support. So we'd, we'd made that clear from the beginning. But I want to also emphasize that it doesn't have to get to any of those points. It doesn't have to get to a strike or to back-to-work legislation. The government has an opportunity now to settle this by negotiating a fair contract that recognizes that these public sector workers are the ones that delivered the much-needed help that Canadians would not have been able to get through the pandemic without. So this is really important. Now, have you specifically had one-on-one -on -one discussions with the Prime Minister regarding the, the Peace Act negotiations? I did raise uh, with, with the Prime Minister in, in our regular meetings, I did raise the concerns that were brewing at the time, this is some, some months ago, that uh, public sector workers are going to be negotiating contracts. I expect the government to do uh, a fair job of negotiating fair contracts for these workers who have done so much for Canadians. I mentioned the pandemic. The supports that went out to people, that was a record level of support that went out to a record number of people, and that's a public service that did that. So they deserve to have fairness and to be treated with dignity and respect. Given the cost of living and inflation pressures, they need to see fair wages. Okay, so so as at the time of this taping, we're, we're, we're going to find out whether or not the government uh, meets the deadline, so stand by for that. But, you know, I also want to get your reaction right now, too. Obviously, the story that broke earlier today uh, regarding the Jamaican vac vacation that the Prime Minister took over uh, the Christmas holidays. Uh, spending that vacation at the home uh, of a Trudeau Foundation donor, what is your reaction to that news regarding the vacation? The vacation, to me, represents something that answers a question that I think a lot of Canadians have wondered. I've wondered myself, how is it the Prime Minister has so much power to solve the problems that people are going through, the housing crisis, the fact that our healthcare system is being eroded with more American-style, for-profit, private care? Why isn't he taking enough of a stance to stop things like for-profit care? Why isn't he tackling the housing crisis? Why isn't he responding to the urgency of people's needs? And the vacation really explains it. He does not understand the struggles of people because it's not a struggle that he's experienced in his life. And that's why he's not taking the housing crisis seriously. That's not why he's not defending our public health care, because these are things that he's never had to worry about. And the vacation is just another example of the type of lifestyle he's had and how it's disconnected from the realities of Canadians. Yeah, but I, I, does it raise questions for you uh, about the ties the Prime Minister has maintained with the Trudeau Foundation? 
In terms of the Trudeau Foundation ties, this is why we've been saying this type of investigation should be in the hands of uh, two parts. One, we're calling for the Auditor General to take a look at the Trudeau Foundation, the independence, uh, the, the capacity, the competence of the Auditor General to have that ability to scrutinize that very carefully and then bring that information to public accounts. We think that's the appropriate way to deal with uh, what's going on in the Trudeau Foundation. And then the broader questions around the Trudeau Foundation and the political interference questions, those can be best dealt with by a public inquiry. And I think all of the emerging stories just highlight how much it is necessary to have a public forum with independence to investigate these questions. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, though, as, as we essentially wait to hear from David Johnston as to what he believes needs to be the next step forward, do you support right now the call that we're hearing from the Conservative leader to have the Prime Minister's brother, Alexandre Trudeau, testify before a Commons committee? What the Conservatives do often is they want to create more of a partisan show than get to the truth. And so what we're calling for is the Auditor General who is independent. This is one of the most capable accountants in Canada whose job is to audit and to investigate. We're calling on the Auditor General to do a thorough and exhaustive investigation into what's going on, as opposed to allowing Conservatives to just attack family members. We want someone independent who is uh, very capable and very well trained to investigate what's going on. So do you see this as an attack on a family member, nothing more than that? Well, I just don't trust the Conservatives to do what's necessary for Canadians. We've seen time and time again, they're more interested in scoring points than getting to the truth. And with questions around the, the legitimacy of donations, questions around um, foreign interference, all these separate questions that are emerging, these are questions that I think are best dealt with, with a public forum, so Canadians know what's going on, and with independence, so it's not seen as a partisan attack, but it's something that's independent. Jagmeet Singh, thank you for the time this evening. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Now, that Jamaica trip taken by the Prime Minister that I raised with Mr. Singh was also raised in the House of Commons earlier today. Take a look at what happened. This Prime Minister wants us to believe that these Trudeau, do Trudeau Foundation donors offered him a $9,000 a night vacation for nothing. We know nothing is free, Mr. Speaker. This is about influence and power for the super rich. So why won't he answer? How much should he pay in accommodation per night at this luxurious villa? Honourable Prime Minister. I guess, Mr. Speaker, the leader of the opposition struggles with the concept of friendship, Mr. Speaker. My father was godfather uh, to one of their kids. Uh, my, their, their father was godfather to one of my brothers. This is 50 years of friendship, Mr. Speaker. Uh, but of course, we work with the ethics commissioners to make sure everything, uh, all the rules were followed. But uh, if uh, the leader of the opposition wants to talk about friendships, let's talk about the fact that he's running to his American billionaire tech giant's friends to attack the local news that Canadians are relying on. Shame on him for going after Canadian content, Canadian news, Canadian things that people care about. Well, to some of the other stories making headlines on this Tuesday. And I've been saying it to businesses, I've been saying it to workers, to governments, uh, to Canadians, anybody who wants to listen, uh, you should plan on inflation coming down. Uh, inflation is coming down. It's 4.3 this morning. We think it's going to be 3 by the summer, 2.5 by the end of the year. 
And that is the message from the Bank of Canada Governor today to the Commons Finance Committee. As you heard, Tiff Macklin saying that Canada's annual inflation rate fell to 4.3% in March. That is the lowest number since the summer of 2021. But mortgage interest costs continue to rise at a record level and grocery prices, well, they remain 10% higher than a year ago. You see it online. You see it and hear it too often from dangerous corners of society that are being amplified by people who should know better. The Prime Minister at the National Holocaust Monument as he calls for more action against anti-Semitism. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day and political leaders gathered at the site to join survivors and to commemorate the six million Jews murdered during the Second World War. That includes people who were sent to concentration camps after the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which began 80 years ago this week. An extremely visible act of resistance, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising remains a symbol of undying faith and determination of the Jewish people during the Holocaust. And in Nova Scotia, flags are at half-mast today for another somber anniversary. It's been three years since the mass shooting that left 22 victims dead. In Ottawa, the House of Commons paused for a moment of silence. Members also heard from the MP representing communities still coping with those 13 horrific hours in April of 2020. Those of us left behind need to continue to honour their memory, to ensure the terrible events are not forgotten, and to hold, account hold accountable the systems and institutions which failed these Canadians in their time of greatest need. There are serious concerns tonight for two Canadian women who are being detained in Syria. Originally feared missing as the day began, they have made contact with a family friend, but still there are questions about how they are doing. With more, we're now joined by Zachary Al-Khatib. He represents the two Canadian women again in Syria. Mr. Al-Khatib, thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you. Now, as I said in the introduction, your clients have now made contact. What exactly do you know uh, about their whereabouts now and how they're doing? Michael, they've been missing for 11 days. My clients are two Canadian women. They're adults, but there are young underage children with them. These are uh, teenage girls, three teenage girls who are also with them. So there's a total of five. They were supposed to be on a repatriation flight 11 days ago. They weren't there at the time of the flight. For some reason, the Canadian government left without them, left them in Syria without knowing where they were, without knowing under what conditions they they were current, they were they had been left. And uh, in that time frame, what we've discovered today is that they've been uh, detained. They are in medical uh, need of medical attention. They have been uh, mistreated. They have had their possessions taken away from them. They've finally been uh, moved to another camp, a camp that's under the authority of the Syrian Defense Forces, the camp that they were originally supposed to have been moved to over 11 days ago. Um, we don't know what's happened in the interim very clearly. We do know that there are serious concerns about their safety. And every day that passes, it seems that, that those concerns grow and grow. And so we're asking the government to assure that they are safe 
and to provide a timeline for their immediate repatriation. Mm -hmm. uh, let me go back on a couple of points there. First and foremost, you say they are in need of medical attention. Uh, just what type of attention to your understanding? Uh, how are they injured or are in crisis right now? I don't know. They were finally allowed to make a phone call. A call came through from, a, from an unknown Syrian number to a family member. They were allowed a very brief call. In that call, they said that they were not well, that they had been detained in prison, uh, in an unknown prison called the Red Prison in a, in a Kurdish uh, prison camp, and they had been moved to another prison, that they had been mistreated, and that they needed medical attention, and that they had nothing with them. They only had the clothes on their backs and that all five of the women had been mistreated. And so we're extremely concerned about what's happened here because the Canadian government provided assurances that they would be safe. These women said before the repatriation operation happened, we are concerned that we will be mistreated by the Kurdish forces. And the government said, we have communicated with the Kurdish forces. We have been given assurances. We're giving you assurances. Present yourselves and you're going to be transported. Well, their worst fears came true is what it seems like. And the government has not taken care of them properly. Well, as you said, they were meant to be uh, repatriated to this country earlier this month on that flight. What exactly have you heard from Global Affairs or the Canadian government regarding that flight and, and as to why these two women and the three teenage girls are not with them? We've heard nothing. We've heard nothing from Global Affairs, which is why we're asking for answers publicly. We've been put in this position because the government has not been clear about what has happened. We were told that they were that they were going to be safe. We were told that they were going to be brought to the repatriation site where they would be transported. None of that happened. Then we were told we don't the government said we don't know what's happened. We don't know where they are. We're trying to get answers and we have none. Those aren't satisfying responses from a, a global leader in international matters. So we're put in the awkward position of having to demand these answers publicly, and we're hoping that the government is going to take immediate steps to both provide the assurances that we've been asking for all along and to immediately fulfill its obligation to repatriate these women. Now, these women, uh, not so much the teenage girls because they were children at the time, but these two women did leave Canada in 2014. They, they left to join ISIS. Canadians were warned against doing that. You know, respectfully, what do you say to Canadians who have little sympathy for what your clients are now going through? Well, let me just take issue with the question because we don't know that they left to join ISIS. We don't know anything about, at all about the circumstances under which they left Canada and why they were in northern Syria. Right now, I haven't seen a shred of evidence that says that they have done anything criminal. We don't know whether they were going somewhere else. We don't know what exactly happened. We do know, look, are they in a place that they, you know, there was a travel advisory, certainly they shouldn't have been there, obviously. However, what exactly, under what circumstances were they made to be there? We, we have no information about that. They are presumed innocent. They are Canadian. I have not been told that they are criminal. I have not even been told that they are certainly going to be charged with a criminal offense. So at present, their presumption of innocence applies Certainly the three young ladies who are under the age of 18, who are teenagers, are completely blameless. And the government, especially for them, has to ensure their safety and bring them back home. So where do you go from here? A public appeal being made to both Global Affairs and the federal government. Where do you go from here? 
I think we just we we keep knocking uh, steadfastly on the doors of power and asking for answers. Canadians deserve that their government protects them. That's that's the that's all we're asking. Canadians have rights. They deserve to be treated fairly and properly, even if Michael, even if it's true that you know some people's assumptions are true that they've done certain things that are blameworthy they should be tried properly in a court of law they should be given a fair process they should be able to challenge evidence they should be able to speak freely and honestly and openly about what's happened to them right now they can do none of those things because their fundamental security hasn't been assured by their government that's all we're asking it's not a difficult ask it's not an unreasonable ask. We just want the government to do what it should do for any Canadian. Zachary Al-Khatib, really appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thank you for having me. As we shared with you last night, more than 60 prominent Canadians signed an open letter to the Prime Minister yesterday. Among them, we are talking former military commanders, federal cabinet ministers, and all of them calling on the federal government to address the poor state of Canada's current military capacity, capabilities, and state of readiness. Among the signatories is our next guest, Andrew Leslie, a retired Lieutenant General, former Chief of the Land Staff, former Member of Parliament, and former Whip for the Trudeau Liberals. General Leslie, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me on, Michael. Listen, I, I want to begin uh, with the timing. Why this letter now? As we know, defense spending has not been a priority for various governments for years. So why now? Well, quite frankly, the, the savage attack by Russia on Ukraine has pointed to the weakness, if you would, within liberal democracies, bless them, who every 20, 30 years or so decide on cashing in a peace dividend with their armed forces, forgetting the lessons of history. Putin attacked because he thought he could win. He took a look around, saw that NATO was not ready, literally not ready to stop him should he decide to invade Ukraine, which he did. NATO has coalesced together in, a, in a actually quite a remarkable fashion, but the point being is that if there had been sufficient deterrent forces deployed in that region, there's a good probability this war would not have happened. Here we are. There's no guarantee that actually Russia, Putin, will stop should they be victorious. I don't think they will be, but there is a chance. So we have to be prepared for what happens next. And the Canadian Armed Forces and Canada is not prepared. Mm -hmm. now, now, you, as we said right off top, you, you've been uh, a member of this government. Did you ever raise your concerns with caucus colleagues or the prime minister? Yes, I did. What is said in caucus stays in caucus, but I joined with two specific interest areas. One was the Canadian Forces, and the second was Veterans Affairs. And uh, throughout my tenure and my four years with the government, and I chose not to run again in 2019, I was vocal, and uh, I just asked the Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. I, I, I appreciate uh, that what happens in caucus stays in caucus, as you say, but, but I'm wondering in terms of general attitude, uh, not necessarily from just the Liberal colleagues, but for, uh, on Parliament Hill, what is the concern for defence matters? Uh, well, members of Parliament usually reflect the concerns of those who elect them. So quite frankly, for the average Canadian, and most of us come from somewhere else, we bring a certain amount of cultural issues with us. We bring a certain amount of knowledge of other countries, of other places to live in the world. 
But uh, Canada largely is fairly immune, they believe, to what happens overseas. Yet at the same time, we take great pride on being a trading nation. Uh, we forget sometimes that what happens overseas can well have a direct impact here. A significant portion of our wealth, to the extent that if our trade were to dry up dramatically, our nation would stumble, if not crumble, in terms of standard of living. And of course, Canadians are in the measure largely comfortable that the Americans will protect us. They're wrong on both counts. Mm -hmm. So where then does investment need to go? What type of policy changes are you looking for here? Well, Canada has a history of taking part in alliances for mutual assured defense, for defense arrangements here in the continental North America and around the world to help promote peace and stability. Point one is we were not ready for what happened in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis Russia, even though there was significant warning at least a year ahead of time. Point two, this lack of readiness is directly attributable to, if you would, lack of attention from federal governments, both liberal and conservative, and insufficient funding. And NATO has established a 2% of gross domestic product as the floor. Canada is currently at around 1.27 billion, by the way, Canada's GDP right now is $2,000 billion, which is $2 trillion. And we can certainly afford to spend more on defense, but it's not only spending it on defense, it's actually getting the money out the door and into capability. And right now, we arguably have the worst procurement system in the world for large programs. Why is that? You know, it, it, that is actually a matter I, I think about when it comes to helicopters, when it comes to planes, when it comes to ships. There seems to always be this huge lag, not by years, but by decades. A variety of governments have been very focused on social programs, on the betterment of Canadian citizens, on redistribution of wealth or whatever else their immediate priority might be. Keeping in mind, almost all of them are absolutely focused on getting reelected. So. We have to realize we live in an interconnected world. We have to realize that there's a savage war taking place in Europe right now. We have to realize that there's a chance that Russia won't stop and that other countries will emulate Russia's example. We also have to be aware that Russia has 7,000 nuclear weapons systems. So you wrap all that bundle together, and now is the time to invest heavily in defense, just as is happening all over the rest of the world. And I'm not exaggerating, but if it takes 30 years to buy a ship and 25 years to buy fighters, then you know that the system is doing that which the governments want it to do. If the federal government was really serious about defense spending, they wouldn't tolerate the continual delays. Since the start of Putin's attack from Russia into Ukraine, not a single piece of defense capability, a combat system has been introduced since that time. Yet when we were in Afghanistan, within a matter of months, we were buying new helicopters and planes. Within a matter of two or three or six months, new tanks. Within a matter of nine months, new weapon systems for the army, radars, and the list goes on. We know we can do it. Sometimes, though, perhaps the federal government doesn't want to do it because they get the sense that Canadians really don't want to pay that much attention to it. Well, it is certainly a matter that Canadians are now thinking about as a result of the letter that you signed among, as we say, dozens of others. Uh, General Andrew Leslie, thank you very much for the time this evening. You're more than welcome.
And that is our program for this Tuesday. For everyone here at CPAC, I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you again on Primetime Politics tomorrow. Up next, Esther Bejan avec L'Essentiel. Thank you.